Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Hello, and welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as our regular listeners know, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire global listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we kick things off, if you're inclined to subscribe to the podcast, that would be very much appreciated. It helps um, a global audience find our show. So that would be uh, very easy to do. Just press the subscribe button and take it from there. Today, it is my absolute pleasure to welcome our guest, Kat Rosquetta who is the Executive Director of the Center for High-Impact Philanthropy at the University of Pennsylvania School of Social Policy and Practice. And Kat, uh, without further ado, welcome on board. Thank you so much. Delighted to be here. Well, I've heard many things, many good things and great things about your center. Being someone who is um, passionate about philanthropy, I'm always keen to um, connect with individuals who uh, have an equal passion for it and also who, uh, who like to embrace a dispassionate approach to analyzing how philanthropy makes an impact and can transform lives and, and the world around us. Tell me a little bit about um, about yourself and how you got to be uh, where you are and a little bit about the center uh, and, and its role within the university and within philanthropy. Yeah, happy to. So in, in a lot of ways, um, the center's work makes sense of, of much of my previous professional experience. So um, like the founders, I am a Wharton alumna, um, so uh, a graduate of the Wharton Business School. But I spent um, more than half of my professional career working in and with nonprofits. Um, And that included working in a for-profit, which is um, Wells Fargo Bank, but focused on their community development efforts, uh, helping the founding team of one of the earliest venture philanthropy funds here in the U.S., and then at, at some point, I, I got tired of people telling me that nonprofits uh, really had to be more businesslike. And I thought to myself, what exactly does that mean? And it was at that point that I chose to come um, to Wharton. Um, and uh, after Wharton, was at McKinsey for several years. And, um, and so when I say the center reflects, um, in some ways, my coming together of the two sides of my professional experience, half my time working in and with nonprofits, including founding a a nonprofit program when the term social entrepreneur didn't exist, but I guess that's what I would have been called. And then half my time working in the business sector that the center was created out of a collaboration by um, Wharton alums and folks of the School of Social Policy and Practice here at Penn. Um, So one way to think of it, 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 it was the combination of the work and insights of social workers and social sector leaders combined with the knowledge and experience of business professionals. And exactly as you described it in the, um, you know, in, in, in why we were so excited to speak to each other, the notion of bringing that commitment and passion to social change and matching it with dispassionate analysis so that you can get to that social change faster, that's very much part of the ethos of the center's work. When did the center come about? When was it born? And, um, and what's it look like today in terms of who's, who's uh, well, you're the executive director, but who are your colleagues? Yeah, so um, uh, that is an easy question for me because I, I, um, 
I did not realize when I came to launch the center that um, my husband and I were going to be welcoming our third child. So it is the same age as um, <laughs> our youngest son. It's um, it's almost 13 years old. Right. And um, from the very beginning, um, we have had a highly multidisciplinary team. So when you think about um, the social causes, the social change issues that funders around the world care about, um, uh, addressing poverty, um, improving educational opportunity for all, um, reducing violence, um, advancing civil rights, um, etc. These issues, these causes have existed um, forever, uh, and very smart people and lots of resources have always tried to make a difference. And so for us, um, not only were we founded by two schools that often didn't work together, a school of social work and um, a business school, but we knew if we were going to have any chance of providing truly actionable guidance and useful education on social impact, we needed to have a highly multidisciplinary team because there's mm -hmm. no one discipline that you know has the answer to um, how do we make the um, world more sustainable. Um, you need the best thinking of, um, of all actors and disciplines. So uh, the core team that helped found the center along with me included um, a pediatrician who still has a primary affiliation at the med school here, um, somebody who had gotten their PhD at RAND mm -hmm. and now is a chief evaluation and, and learning officer at a major foundation, um, a lawyer who had um, spent a good part of her career um, uh, dealing with child welfare policy. So I mentioned that those were the founding team members and, um, and that multidisciplinary lens is something that has persisted since those early days. So depending on the project we're working on, um, for example, we are currently working on a project, how, how can philanthropy strengthen democracy? Right. Um, and so we've reached out to colleagues at um, the Mitchell Center for Democracy, political scientists, um, constitutional scholars. We are working on um, how can philanthropy better address mental illness and addiction to improve behavioral health. In that case, we've reached out to some of our colleagues who are experts in severe mental illness, um, who are working in the fields of social work or psychiatry or psychology um, for education programs or, or any work on how can we improve education outcomes. Um, we leverage both academics and practitioners um, in child development and education and psychology. So um, who are our colleagues at any given point um, depends a little bit on who, what, what, um, what cause areas or social impact areas we're tackling. No, I understand. And in terms of these particular social areas that you are tackling, these thematic areas, is that as a consequence of a philanthropist or a foundation approaching you and saying, look, we're really keen on exploring this space very thoroughly and we need your help? Or is it something that's sort of originating from within and you think, well, early childhood development, let's, let's explore that as, a, as an exercise and then take it from there? There are several criteria that we use to um, de determine what our thematic research will be for a given year. Mm -hmm. um, the first always is we have to see a high potential for social impact. So um, given, particularly in the U.S. right now, the um, 
opioid epidemic. Right. And um, given what people are now referring to as deaths of despair, um, the increase in um, in deaths due to um, mental illness and behavioral health issues, that was clearly an area where there is tremendous potential social impact at play if folks can have um, access to great information about what works and education on how to use that. So one criteria for any area we look at is um, there is high potential for social impact. Um, many people are affected and in deep ways that if we can, as a society, address them better, could uh, result in tremendous positive change. So that's one. But there are obviously many <laughs> cause areas that fit that um criteria. So then we look at things like, yes, do we have either um, unrestricted funding or dedicated funding um, from a set of individual donors or institutional funders that would allow us to create independent guidance on that area? Like any nonprofit, we need the resources to do that work and do it well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, And then um, the two other things we look at are, um, do we think we can quickly assemble a team that can um, generate those answers uh, quickly and well. Um, so historically, we have not focused as much on enviro- environmental issues, despite the fact that we know the tremendous um, impact at play, and that just has been a function of historically um, who has been strongest in our network and what team can we stand up quickly. Um, but that's a, a little bit of a kind of um, feasibility. How quickly can we do this work well? Right. And then the last criteria is, is there um, clear funder interest, not by the folks who might be paying for it because we're not consultants, but um, by donors around the world. So that's why um, we never thought we would do this. But in 2008, 2009, it wasn't on our research agenda. But when the economic downturn became so apparent, Mm-hmm. We started a team and a project on high impact philanthropy in the downturn when the earthquake in Haiti happened around that same time. Again, we were not, we did not have um, disaster uh, relief philanthropy on our agenda, but um, that combination of there was tremendous social impact at play, and um, many funders were sitting there saying, This is so awful. How can I help? I don't know how when there's a situation where we feel like our guidance can cut through the noise and help people help others, mm-hmm. that that is an opportunity for us to launch a project. All right. I mean, when I think of academic rigor, University of Pennsylvania is certainly right up there. I hear a lot about impact, social impact, impact investing. Impact is everywhere, that word. Yeah. And occasionally <laughs> it's overused a little bit. And maybe that's... Oh. In, in, in our world, more than occasionally. <laughs> right, right. And, you know, it can be a little bit frustrating because you hear people using the label and sometimes you think it's a label of convenience. You know, people mm. are just grabbing it on to sell you something or right. to give credence to what they're saying and so forth. Right. But when you ask somebody to define it and, and, um, and when you ask what sort of methodology they might be looking at and so forth, yeah. it becomes a different question. And so yeah. let me ask you, the expert, in terms mm. of social impact <laughs> and how do you... How do you go about looking at different interventions that might be considered and what is impact? What, what is that to you? So for us, um, we have a pretty broad definition of social impact and that is a 
positive change in the lives of the individuals and communities that a funder hopes to help. Mm -hmm. Now, that's different from a more scientific definition of impact that maybe one people would expect because we are based at a university. Some of our colleagues, particularly in the health sciences um, and in their research, will have a much narrower definition of impact, which is the, the result caused by a particular intervention studied and that can be measured with confidence and attributed to that intervention. Mm -hmm. right? So th that kind of gives you the range of, of how we see people using the term impact or, or social impact. For us, it's, it's the, the positive change in the world um, and in the lives of the people and the communities that someone hopes to help. And we focus more on um, what are the principles of high impact philanthropy that can get a donor or a funder faster to social impact. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and for us, that's really um, four things. One is um, clarity on what the social impact goal is. You know, there's that Lewis Carroll quote that um, if you don't know where you're going, any path will get you there. Sure. And, and so um, what, what is that change is reducing housing insecurity. Is it uh, reducing hunger so that every family knows where their next meal is going to come from? Is it about um, reducing educational inequity so that every child um, can learn and grow to his or her full potential? Whatever it is, what is that? It, it, so high impact philanthropy for us has to start with clarity around what the social impact goal is. And then, like I said earlier, every goal that we've seen that a funder is focused on has been a goal of somebody at some point. Um, and so let's not waste time, energy, and money either making the same mistakes that somebody has made before or worse, mm -hmm. reinventing the wheel. Um, so the second principle of high-impact philanthropy is um, uh, making sure your decisions are informed by the best available evidence. Um, and best available evidence doesn't just mean academic evidence. It also means um, what are the observations of folks on the front lines? Um, what are the, um, the folks who maybe their work will never wind up in an academic journal, but nevertheless, they've been studying the phenomenon and what works and what doesn't work for a very long time. So we have a broad definition of evidence. Um, but using that evidence means that you can get to impact faster. The third is having a, uh, an attitude of, of learning measuring and managing progress. I mean, those, when you are have some clarity around the goal, when you're using the best information available, and when you are looking to see what, what um, where are my assumptions wrong? Ooh, what have I learned that nobody else has so I can share it? How can I use my money to have even more impact? So there's, a, there's the thinking bang for buck. Those four things, focus on social impact, evidence-informed decision-making, thinking bang for buck, and with a posture of continuous learning, for yeah. us, that defines the practice of high-impact philanthropy. And that's how one can get to social impact faster. I'm with you. And I notice you have an annual publication for a sort of high-impact giving guide. Tell me a little bit about that, because I imagine you may have some for lack of a better word, you may have some products or services that are sort of off the shelf. And yeah, yeah. then you have more bespoke engagements as well. Tell me a little bit about that, that spectrum that you have there and, um, and, and about this particular annual publication, the High Impact Giving Guide. 
Sure. So we are based at a university and in universities do two things. They develop knowledge for the world and they teach. And so that's what we do. If we were a business, we'd have two business lines, uh, knowledge, um, public guidance and education programs. So we have uh, a lot of, um, we have a real commitment to making sure that any analysis, any guidance, um, is packaged in a way that anybody around the world can access it. And one of the most uh, mainstream and accessible guides that we uh, do every year is our high impact giving guide. Um, and what that is are tips for um, any donor um, around the world who is trying to have greater impact, examples of high impact philanthropic opportunities that our team has analyzed um, over the years, um, resources that can be useful if you want to practice high impact philanthropy um the tips that we provide in the guide are helpful but um, maybe we didn't happen to um give an example in a cause area that you care about mm -hmm. um so uh and and part of why we started doing that annual guide is because sometimes when people hear the term high impact philanthropy they think oh i i have to be a billionaire to practice that yes and um and we joke and say no 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 <laughs> that that's high input philanthropy um high impact is about making as big a difference as you can with whatever resources you have to give and so you'll find unlike some of our other cause area guides in our high impact giving guide, we always make sure to highlight um, organizations and philanthropic opportunities that an everyday donor um, could give to and feel good about knowing that their money is making a difference. I mean, that's a very good point. The number of times people approach me if they're looking for philanthropy advice or something along those lines, and they say, well, how much money do you need to start up a foundation? Or how much money, you, and it's always this concept of you need a million you need a few million you need yeah. but actually you can do a lot with a little and also there's this whole notion of collaborating with others who may be in an equally uh in an equal financial standing as yours and mm -hmm. um, who may benefit from the knowledge sharing and and pulling resources together right i mean you don't need to be a ultra high net worth individual to to get involved in philanthropy absolutely not you don't need to be a high uh high net worth individual. And in fact, at least in the United States, historically, you weren't a high net worth individual. Right. I mean, the, the history of philanthropy in the US is what economists would say, um, you know, it, it has a long tail. Mm -hmm. And it's primarily individual donors, um, at, at least until very recently, 70 to any 80% of the now $400 billion of philanthropic capital that's allocated in the US is by individuals. And again, historically, it's been a lot of small gifts. Um, and in addition to banding together so that your funds might have greater impact, which is um, seen in the growth of things like giving circles, which is exactly yes. that, um, uh, increasingly people are recognizing that um, there are multiple ways that they can use their money to do good alongside philanthropy. Okay. So this, there is a, in, you know, in a lot of ways, a center was created in a time where there was, you know, between folks um, informed by folks from the business school, but at the School of Social Policy and Practice, that blurring of lines between business and social sector is happening in all sorts of ways where you've got things like um, conscious consumerism, right? Uh, I'm going to choose to buy 
this food because it is more sustainable for the planet. I am buying these shoes because um, I like the labor practices they're using or because they've got a, um, a practice of for every pair of shoes or socks that I buy, they're going to give to um, somebody who would otherwise not be able to afford them, right? That, that's mm -hmm. not philanthropy. That's thinking about how I spend my money in ways that are aligned with my values or social impact goals. Um, and then there's the whole broader world of um, what people call impact investing, which is um, can I use some of my money, my wealth, um, to achieve not only or to advance not only a social goal, but maybe also get a financial return. And anytime you see an opportunity where you can advance positive social change and get a financial return, um, well, then you get to use that money again to do more good. So there's, there's a sort of recycling of capital. Mm -hmm. um, as I remind people, um, philanthropy from a financial standpoint is a hundred percent negative return. <laughs> okay. Um, but you know, worth it if you can, that's not the point of it. It's not supposed, it, it, the point of it is to have as great a positive social return as you can find that social impact in our, in our world. Um, but philanthropy is increasingly living alongside impact investing and conscious consumerism, mm -hmm. um, for people who, who want to use all their resources aligned with their values and aligned with the things they care about. I suppose there's something to be said for keeping the, um, definitions clean and clear, right? Impact investing, philanthropy, sustainable or ethical investing, or ESG integrated investing. I mean, these things, in many respects, spiritually might be aligned, but in but there is a need for defining what's what. Yeah, well, and they are um, practically speaking very different actions. Right. Right. With with um, depending on where you live, very different rules and very different opportunities. Right. So. Um, so I, you're absolutely right. It, it's while all can be used um, to advance social goals and, and, and can be used to align with values, the way you use your money for philanthropy and the kinds of opportunities available philanthropically are very different from the kinds of opportunities that might be available through an impact investment play. Sure. And again, which is very different from the kind of opportunities people have with spending their money. One way we think of it is um, it's, it's, it's sort of thinking about your social impact portfolio. Mm -hmm. right? those, those are three different wedges <laughs> in, in a pie of how you can use your, your, uh, your funds. Do you find philanthropy is under attack a little bit? And I say this because I've been in philanthropy for quite a long time and I never had any pushback on philanthropy if we've been mm. talking about it 10 years ago. Mm. Now, on the other hand, it's not unusual to read the Financial Times or some of the main media and hear about philanthropists either being painted with this brush of, well, it's a vanity exercise, it's a tax exercise. You look at what happened with uh, the Notre Dame in Paris and how quickly those philanthropic funds came to the rescue after that fire. But yet, socially speaking, there were these questions about well, what does it say about society when you have under five 
mortality rates, you know, children yes. under five mortality rates globally are very high numbers. What does that say about society? So you have that. Mm -hmm. And then also, if you touch in one of the thematic areas that are of interest to you right now in terms of democracy and strengthening, um, philanthropy strengthening democracy, mm -hmm. occasionally you also read policy questions, right? Or people saying, well, yes, okay, but what, what about the um, legitimacy of a multi-billion dollar foundation doing a nationwide systemic change play uh, in a sub-Saharan African country and who, who voted them in? And those right. I find I find incredibly thrilling policy questions, which yeah. which are valid, right? And they, they should be explored. And and yeah. I'm just curious, what's your take on on the on the sentiment that that's around us today? Mm -hmm. So um, a couple of thoughts on that. Um, one is that when we teach, um, and, and we teach both graduate students here at Penn as well as in our funder education program, um, we remind people of the strengths and limitations of philanthropy mm -hmm. and how philanthropy exists alongside the two other major sectors, particularly in the United States where we have a very developed philanthropic and nonprofit sector. Two other sectors are the business or commercial sector and the government sector or the public sector. When there has been big positive advances in society, it has almost always been because of the combined work of all three sectors. And that's because philanthropy is tiny <laughs> sure. as a resource compared, you know, just to give you an example, the largest foundation, the Gates Foundation, its endowment wouldn't even be able to pay for two years worth of public education in one state in the United States, right? So we always have to remember philanthropy relative to the financial resources available in the public sector and available in the business sector is quite small. Um, the criticisms recently um, around philanthropy and, and is philanthropy, um, you know, I, I talked about our project philanthropy to strengthen democracy is philanthropy undermining democracy mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because it's a, it's, it's plutocratic, meaning it's a concentration of wealth, but focused on public things that, you know, that brings up, as you said, a, a really important conversation about the role of each of those sectors um, in society. And part of what's happening with philanthropy right now, at least in the U.S., is the same concentration of wealth uh, and the wealth disparity um, is reflected in a concentration in philanthropic influence. Mm -hmm. And so the question now is how, you know, how well, the question that we're tackling is how can philanthropy strengthen democracy? How do we make sure that it, in the in the best tradition of philanthropy, in the best tradition of democracy, at least in the United States, works towards um, the public good? And and historically, again, philanthropy, the, the same thing that makes it useful in advancing the public good is also its limitation. And I think the limitations right now, given the um, inequities and the wealth disparity is, is what a lot of people are focusing on. The, the, and, and what you've mentioned, it's unaccountable. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I mean, uh, a politician, at least in a democracy can be voted out. Uh, a business can fold without enough customers or, um, can have no investors, right? There are ways to hold it accountable for outcomes. 
philanthropy is not accountable. And, and that is what troubles people, especially when you have uh, a lot of influence, but you're not accountable. The flip side of that, though, is that philanthropy can take risks that no other sector can. Right? So when you look at things that were once, when you look at, in the U.S., um, the right to vote for women, the right of um, individuals of different races and ethnicities to marry, um, or to work and get a wage, the value of public resources, assets like clean air and water, understanding those and advancing those rights and valuing those resources, um, that came from the efforts of voluntary organizations and nonprofits in the U.S. So in a way, you kind of can't have one without the other, <laughs> which is you can't, yeah, it's they were able to fly under the radar screen and start championing social change when some of those things I mentioned were not a concept or were illegal, right? So, you know, the, that the the government at that time had already said, no, this is not legal. Business, there there was no business reason for um, at that time um, or that anyone saw to champion something like women getting a right to vote. So th that's, that's kind of what we get, at least in the United States with philanthropy is that um, it can be accountable in ways that make people very nervous, mm -hmm. rightfully so. And that lack of accountability means that they, it can sometimes do things that can advance society as a whole, but where the government and the business sector aren't ready or aren't willing to tackle. Fascinating. How far are you into your, um, into that project that, you know, how, how can philanthropy strengthen democracy? Do you have some, um, clear insights already, or is this a work in progress and you're, you're hoping to publish things, um, at a future date? Where, where, where do things stand yeah. with that? So we're, we, we are, um, uh, we're, it's still work in progress, but getting very close to, um, publication mm -hmm. and we will make it, um, free and publicly available on our website and through partners. Um, so some of the things that we found is, um, and, and at least this, this particular piece focuses on democracy in the United States. Um, we've identified, uh, the key elements where there's broad consensus. If you have these elements, um, you have a strong democracy. Um, and that includes things like, um, uh, empowered citizens and fair processes and information that is, uh, timely and useful and that you can trust. Um, so we're, we have a framework for how funders who care about strengthening democracy can think about philanthropic opportunities. And then um, we actually explore two areas in particular that have seen a decline, um, but if bolstered by philanthropy, uh, really boost um, democracy in communities. And, and that is um, increasing civic engagement, okay. which, which is um, indiv individuals um, connecting to each other in ways that build trust identify common aims and allow them to hold their representatives accountable. And then the second is, um, and, and this gets to where the business sector failure 
is providing a needed opportunity for philanthropy to step in mm -hmm. um, local local media okay. um, because right now the business model in the US for local media is broken um, there are uh, dozens of communities around the country who have no source no local media source at all and what that means is that they don't have the kind of information that can help them um, understand what's going on in their community, understand um, who among their public officials are doing what and hold them accountable, um, create a community identity so that they're not um, overly influenced by sort of national, um, which tends to be more partisan politics. So those are two areas that we're going to explore a little bit more in depth, um, but we're going to provide an overall framework on how how to think about opportunity, philanthropic opportunities to strengthen democracy. And then we're going to combine that. Yeah, no, we're, we're very excited about that. And we're going to combine that with um, a related, uh, almost like uh, the high impact giving guide where we provide specific examples. Mm -hmm. We'll also have a guide that provides specific examples of nonprofits who are working to strengthen democracy in the U.S. Fascinating. I mean, the media thing on its own is the whole conversation, isn't it? I mean, yeah. So um, it, it, there's always a, uh, a challenge for for us to manage the scope of sure, our work. Sure. I feel like um, th this hopefully will get people going. I think there's an opportunity to do an even deeper dive on on things like uh, the role that media plays and how we can shore it up in ways that help all of us. Do you have a repository of information of your research and uh, various publications? And I mean, are all of these things readily available? Um, for for general population to go to your website and just check them out on their own or or how, what's the best way of accessing yeah. the sort of knowledge that and content that you're you're creating so we have a very deep commitment to making as much of our work um free and publicly available anybody can go to our website um so it's www.impact.upenn.edu mm -hmm. and find our um our publications um, and download them for free. And we're actually in the process of um, updating our website to hopefully make it easier for people to find um, the content that is relevant to them. Over time, we've amassed um, such an inventory sure. of publications and guidance that we realize we need to create a much um, clearer path to them because of the diversity of cause areas and questions we know that donors have and that um, and interested in, in the amount of content we have. So yes, um, our website has a lot of guidance and information and it's all available for free. Um, in addition, um, to try to uh, make our, uh, our work even more accessible, um, we have partnerships with um, folks like uh, Fidelity Charitable, which is the largest sure. donor advised fund um, that mirrors some of our guidance on their um, on their portal for their account holders. Um, we've, we've worked with uh, Giving Compass, which is mm -hmm. a great initiative of uh, the Rakes Foundation, um, so that they uh, add our content to the relevant um, uh, sections of their platform. And we're always looking for other ways so that um, you know, if, if we're if what we care about is getting people to impact faster and more with more confidence, any way we can reduce um, the time and sure. the ease um, is useful to our mission. So um, 
And, and, you know, one of the reasons I was so excited to have this conversation, because given your audience and their interest in sustainability and social impact, um, for them to know about our resources and for um, and you to have it on the episode page, that's just yet another door um, to for uh, for impact that we're we'd like to offer people who care. Absolutely. Now, when I did my master's um, at the London School of Economics uh, in management, a uh, long time ago, 20 years yeah. ago or so. Uh, half the class went into investment banking, the other half went into management consulting. And occasionally somebody, yeah, <laughs> maybe one or two outliers went into something else, but pretty much that was a split. Um, occasionally a lecture there or at other universities, and I find that MBA students are actually very, um, it's heartening to see how interested they are in philanthropy and sustainability and social entrepreneurship and all of these things that were sort of alien concepts back then. And I'm curious, your role in terms of um, creating that next generation of talent, whether it's, you know, those students at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, or people coming in through ed executive education. Tell me a little bit about mm -hmm. that role and how that's changing and where you see it going, because I find it fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, um, the increase in interest among students from um, all schools, all disciplines is really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's one of the reasons why we started our semester long class. It, you know, I tell the story that um, there were uh, Wharton students, or business school students, as well as students from like um, getting a master's in public administration or PhD students. And at one point they came uh, to us and said, oh, we'd like to do a site visit at the Center for High Impact Philanthropy. And um, anybody who's visited our offices know that it's not much to look at here. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. So I was confused. Well, I visit to the center. And then I realized, no, no, no. They want to understand what we do because they're interested in doing some form of it too. Mm -hmm. right? Whether it's a business school student who wants to work in philanthropy or impact investing or maybe thinks they're going to have a more traditional business career but wants to alongside that have a rich philanthropic and civic career. Um, or they, So um, it's precisely this growing interest among young people and students that we launched our semester-long class um, on social impact strategy and analysis. And it was the first class of its kind that was designed to be open to students from all 12 schools here at Penn. Right. And, um, and our education programs have evolved. So then what would happen is um, as that class got underway, um, we heard from folks outside the university, um, professionals, uh, high net worth donors, representatives from family foundations who would read our publications and say, hey, um, how, how can we in, in our family, in our foundation, with our donors, um, how, how can we practice high impact philanthropy? Um, and because we're based at a university and our two functions are to provide knowledge and teach, that's what started our signature week-long funder education program, okay. which is um, it is uh, in person on Penn's campus, but it draws philanthropic leaders from around the world um, to spend a week with our team um, learning um, how to identify and manage high-impact philanthropic opportunities. Um, so that was the second educational program after the semester-long class that we launched. And we're actually, in because of demand um, from others in the space, 
we're in the process of launching or piloting two more programs that we will um, we'll pilot it in a hybrid platform because we recognize um, there are many, many more people who want to understand how to have social impact mm-hmm. who will never come to Philadelphia. Right. So, um, so the hybrid one will be, um, a, a online plat. It will, will, will include an in-person, um, convening, um, but will be primarily online, right. um, and take advantage of a lot of the interactive learning tools that now exist. And we're hoping that that can, um, help just more individuals, no matter their role and around the world, um, learn about the work we do and adapt it to their, to their own efforts. Fascinating. I don't know whether this is the case, but in philanthropy, you always think, you know, it's good to be collegial, collaborative and so forth. And I'm curious at the university level, do you find other universities coming up to you who say, look, we don't have any offering in philanthropy or social entrepreneurship, but could we tap your wisdom? Uh, in terms of what you're doing, and because we might yeah. want to, um, we might want to do something similar at our in our campus at our school. We have, and it's a it's a big difference from when I started uh, twelve plus years ago. When when I when we started the center, um, I got a lot of uh, questions from uh, academics or university representatives, both within Penn and outside Penn. You know. What, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Mm-hmm. Wait, you're not, you're not in fundraising. So, but, and you're not studying fundraising. You're, you're trying to be a resource for high impact giving. It, it was almost like, am I understanding you right? Sure. Um, and then fast forward, we do get a lot of inquiries from other regions that don't have the same, um, history in their region of a, a large and, and, um, active third sector, mm-hmm. but who care about how private resources can serve the public good, which is basically what philanthropy is. And so, yes, they have, um, uh, asked, we've, we've, sat down with those folks. Um, they've done, they have done site visits, um, to meet with our team, um, folks from, uh, Europe, Latin America and Asia. Um, and, and, you know, what I would love, um, is to, to see a global network of university based centers like ours, um, all working together and learning together, um, how we can, use our platforms at universities to bring even more knowledge and better education so that people are equipped with what they need to, to do more good. That would be something. Is there any such network in the, in the process of being formulated or is that just an idea you're throwing out here that could be of well, interest to those? There are relationships. <laughs> right, bilateral relationships. Mainly. Yes. And, right. and um, not, not at the level that I just described, okay. but I think now that some of us have found each other, um, you know, that's, 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 so maybe we get the ball rolling now then. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Great. Um, I know we're, we're, we've been covering quite a lot of ground and, you know, truth be told, there's no way we're going to be able to cover everything that I had in mind. This conversation is just really fascinating at every stage. So we're going to have to have you back. Um, <laughs> let me ask you though, a few things before we, um, before we wrap things up in terms of, um, well, the Do One Better podcast, it is about inspiring global listeners to be more philanthropic and act more sustainably and embrace social entrepreneurship. 
So what's the key takeaway, bearing that in mind, what's the key takeaway that uh, you'd love for our listeners to keep in mind after this podcast? I think the key takeaway that I'd love, I'd love folks to go away with is, um, is that, you know, now more than ever, any individual can practice high impact philanthropy. It, it, because high impact philanthropy is not about the amount of money you have to give. It's about how you give it. And because of resources like ours um, and podcasts like yours, there is more and more really high quality content mm-hmm. and education programs that can help you be a, a high impact giver. And, and it's sort of like any practice um, the earlier you start, the better you get. So I guess my final point is just start. Use these resources that are there and um, and get excited about the impact that you can have over a lifetime of practicing high-impact philanthropy. That's great. I mean, I think that just start is exactly right. There's so many people who have the means, who have the intention, and just yeah. are just for whatever reason not mobilizing. Um, it, yeah. The time is just never right. And, yeah. uh, and they're afraid to get it wrong, uh, where in actual fact, you might get something wrong, but just get on the journey and start tweaking as you go along, right? Exactly. And, you know, you're, you're, um, you mentioned earlier about uh, uh, giving with others. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I sometimes compare this to, oh, I know I should exercise. It's the right thing. But, like, the inertia is there. So some of what can help to just start. Maybe just like you find a running buddy, find your giving buddy, right? And and that can sometimes start you faster and um, help you go farther than you might have gone alone. Sounds good. Sounds good. What's the best way for somebody listening to this show to get a hold of you, to contact you, whether they have any follow-up questions or any comments or anything at all? Is it through Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, email? What do you Um, recommend? So we, um, our team maintains a lot of social media platforms, um, Twitter, our Facebook page, LinkedIn, um, and we have a general um, uh, information uh, uh, address and on our website. Um, so whatever mechanism people are most comfortable with, you can find the center. Right. And um, we work as a team. So depending on the question um, or the resource they're looking for, we can make sure that, um, that, that the individual who's asking gets to the person or to the resource, um, that they need. Perfect. And for our listeners, anyways, our regular listeners will know, but in case you're new to the show, uh, we do have a dedicated webpage on our website at Ligi.org. That's L I D J I.org that will have all the episode notes, including relevant links, uh, that can't, uh, to research and resources that Kat's mentioned during the uh, today's show, also uh, links to social media and uh, and websites and so forth. So that's at Ligi.org. And uh, and before we wrap up, uh, if you subscribe to the show, that would be very much appreciated. Just click the subscribe button on your iPhone or Android device, and um, that would be great. Kat, thank you so very very much. I really I we have run out of time. You will have to come back. And we will, have, <laughs> we will have to continue this chat. But I find it highly informative and inspiring. And I really hope that um, the wisdom that you've imparted today will resonate with uh, quite a few of our listeners and that they'll, uh, they'll take up uh, the challenge and uh, start doing uh, uh, high-impact philanthropy. 
Well, thank you. It was it was a pleasure to have this conversation, and and thank you for all you're doing to make sure that um, these kinds of conversations uh, are happening uh, more broadly around the world, because that's that's how we all start um, getting to impact sooner. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot org. And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. Mm-hmm.